I've been practicing this craft of social documentary and uh, photojournalism for the last 40 years. I work in Brooklyn, I sleep in Queens, and I spend my time in Manhattan. So I became a self-taught photographer, but I, I think the seed was planted by the time I was in junior high school, because that was the first time that I read that Chinese you know, completed the railroad. So in every uh, social studies history book, there's that uh, famous photograph of the two locomotives facing each other, and all these people uh, in front of the locomotives. So I figured, well, if the Chinese built the railroad, you know, let me go see how many uh, Chinese there were. Looked at the history book, still not a single Chinese. I said, you know, so if you read about something and you don't see it, then where are they? I realized that um, I was not good in chemistry, not good in math. I had a, a better understanding of social studies. Basically, I wound up working in a social uh, service organization after I got out of college. I used photography uh, in the Lower East Side to document the uh, deplorable housing conditions that were pretty rampant. So I took before and after photographs of the conditions. What I wanted to do is to give uh, the community a voice through photographs. Stories, histories, what differentiates one from the other? And why are they so important to document? For those of us who are podcast junkies, it's not hard to understand how crucial individuals and community stories are to understanding the world around us. And with so much going on right now, India's coronavirus, the Free Palestine Movement, Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, and so much more, sharing and saving our stories are more important to presenting history fairly than ever before. Today, we're going to meet some of the people who are documenting our model minority communities and histories right now in real time. People who are leading the way in print publishing, or through activism, or even through podcasting. So thanks for joining me in this episode titled Documenting Our Histories, where we explore the people who have made history simply by documenting it. I'm Nidhi Shastri, and this is Model Minority Uniquely American. So, unsurprisingly, I wanted to kick off this episode with a story of my own. And it's about to get real meta, because I actually want to talk about the process of making this podcast for me so far. It is really hard to find our uniquely American stories. And to find research, facts, and data is difficult, not because it doesn't exist, but because it's so hidden and under-discussed and under-researched in our society. A lot of the stories I know to tell are because I've seen them, or I've lived them, or I've known people who have lived them. But to find and connect with other people who are doing this work is not always easy, because our community is so spread out and our histories are so unique. In the first minute or so, you heard some words from Chinese-American photographer Corky Lee. Lee passed away this year due to complications from COVID-19, and it's an understatement to say that our community has lost an important figure. He was an activist, a first-generation American, and much like me, he was really fond of telling stories. 
So let me take a moment to say, the work that I do would be so much harder without people like Corky Lee. Because he chose to be a freelancer and document our stories through photos after seeing a lack of documented history of Chinese Americans who had built the railroads, he decided to make a difference. He photographed South Asian Americans in post 9-11 America. He documented East Asian Americans protesting labor laws and even Southeast Asians facing police brutality. Nobody asked him to do it, but he did. He actively chose to. And I'd like to think that, like Garan Mahajan has said in one of our previous episodes, he too must have felt the history of Asian America in his bones. Now, I'm not trying to say that our history would have disappeared completely without Quirky Lee, but just imagine if nobody took the time to document all that stuff. Our stories and our histories have been made out to be hidden and obscure, but thanks to people like Quirky Lee, it's not impossible to uncover it. We tell our own stories. We document our own history. So take a moment today to Google Quirky Lee, read up on him a bit, swipe through his photos, honor his work, because his life's history is a crucial part of our community's history. Thank you, Quirky Lee. And I'm glad to say that this episode is dedicated to you. Alright guys, so during this episode, I set out to find what I like to describe as my people. These are the storytellers, the documenters, the grassroots change makers of the world, and the people who are bringing stories to life in real time. Over the last few years, we've seen new levels of representation for Asian, African, and Middle Eastern immigrants and first gens, mostly in the form of people working as creative freelancers, YouTubers, activists, and all of that stuff. These are all categories that stem from the overarching category of independent work, meaning projects or positions that we've carved out for ourselves. Now more than ever, you can find all kinds of independent media by people from your specific ethnic group or your community, which is connecting us with people all over the world and making history like never before. So I began doing some digging about who in my community was documenting and telling stories. And in what I can only describe as a blessing from the social media algorithm, I stumbled upon an ad about two creators who, like me, were telling the stories of their community through a podcast right here in Chicago. Welcome to season two of Community in Arabic with me, Malik Abdel Samad and Anwar Jibran, sponsored by Lipton Yellow Label. Thanks to all of you who highlighted success stories of Arab immigrants in North America and how they positively impacted our community. Stay tuned during Ramadan and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media. Malik and Anwar have built a following of over 11,000 people and they've been working to share news and influential Arab American stories when sipping some tea for about a year now. It's even inspired the name of their podcast, Community, tea as in tea leaves, in Arabic. 
It details the journeys of Arab Americans, success, hardship, immigration stories, and all from all across North America. And you guessed it, it's actually in the Arabic language itself. I sat down with Malik and Anwar to explore what drove them to start this podcast and pose them the question, why focus on Chicago? So the idea was that we, we tried to look for media outlets that kind of cover the city in our own language, and we found none. While there's a lot of media outlets that speak in Arabic, there's none that really actually cover the city. All media outlets cover, you know, our own community, what's going on in our own community, what's going on in, our, in back home, you know, but it never talks about the city itself. So what we decided to do is we decided to go for a new platform called Chicago in Arabic, which it, it literally what the name says, we talk about Chicago, but we talk about it in Arabic. We talk about the culture, the history, the architecture, lifestyle, business, events, anything that's going on in the city with the goal of bringing the city closer to, you know, Arab immigrants. So kind of like Arab immigrants can embrace the city as, as their new home. And through our work on Chicago in Arabic, which, you know, again, it's been five years we've been working on it. We just met a lot of, you know, really awesome, inspiring people along the way. And we, we had a thought, you know, and I was like, you know, podcast is, is, is growing and a lot of people are growing interested in podcasts. So why not try to highlight some of these stories on, on a podcast? And we started our first podcast a couple years ago. We called it The Podcast by Chicago in Arabic because we couldn't agree on another name. Um, so um, we did that and then started doing some interviews. We probably had one to two listeners per episode until until we grew and then we started getting more interesting guests. And and about a few months ago, like over the summer, um, we got a sponsorship opportunity from, from Lipton. Um, Lipton Tea from Unilever and they saw what we did they liked the idea of, of how we did the podcast and they offered us a sponsorship opportunity to just kind of do the same thing but at a, at a much bigger scale and that's where um, community in Arabic started and we did season one and now um, we're in preparation for, for season two the first season uh, from, from community or even uh, uh, the podcast uh, by Chicago in Arabic um, we 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 had amazing guests and and uh, they all shared uh, this common uh, characteristics or common theme that you know uh, as an immigrant you need to work hard you need to prove yourself uh, you need to uh, to work uh, twice as hard than than a, uh, a person who was born here and looking to achieve the same goals and. Uh, uh, to to be able to to kind of achieve your 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 sets of goals that that uh, that you put so so to me uh, learning about all these amazing stories especially in season one uh, you see how how some of them they they came for example we had the the founder of of Aladdin uh, eatery which is a um, Mediterranean food chain in the, the Midwest and he's from Lebanon his name is uh, Fadi Shamon and how he how he immigrated from from Lebanon when uh, he was a kid and then uh, how he went to college and, and then how he worked so hard to you know prove himself uh, prove himself and then how he transitioned to to uh, to founding this this chain which is a very successful brand uh, 
so we learned so many amazing lessons and um, you know we we were exposed to so many am- amazing ideas and um, we were really fortunate to start that podcast or even you know start uh, uh, the platform in the first place because that gave us the opportunity to meet so many amazing people and learning so much from them So Anwar and Malik have shared some incredible stories on their podcast so far, such as the story of a guy called Nabil Karabatyan. And I think his story really impacted a lot of people because he was kind of an, an underdog. You know, he came here without an education, was an engineer, wasn't a doctor, didn't have a lot of, um, you know, educational background. He came with a really broken English um, and he was like disadvantaged in every sense of the world. And then um, just figured out his way and he created a big import company. And now his company is one of the biggest um, import companies for um, ethnic food um, to the to the U.S. And his story was like super, super interesting. I mean, he's as authentic as it gets. His is his the very typical story of immigrant hustle. You know, somebody comes with nothing, no education, no money, no nothing, and then breaks in and, and does great things. So I think that's one of the stories that we got amazing feedback on. People really, really were inspired by his story. I also asked Anwar and Malik why they felt that it was important to share these Arab-American stories. And they responded by explaining what storytelling is really about, uplifting the people in their communities. Well, part of it is that, you know, like you said, you know, we're, we're already depicted in the media as being, as, as the image of, of, of war and destruction and and. and you know, extremism and this and that. So part of it is that we're documenting all the great things that are coming out of the community. And and the other part is that with the wave of immigration, it's really important from our perspective to show new immigrants that, you know, if, if you work hard and if you hustle, this is a country of opportunity, you will make it. People made it before and you can do the same. And that's that's our whole purpose is just to inspire the new generation of immigrants. Yeah, and and also, in 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 addition to these points, uh, uh, season one of Community in Arabic uh, was really to show that that hey, even after you succeed, you still um, can have a really positive impact on your community. So, yes, uh, uh, I worked hard, I succeeded, I can also lift my community and have a positive impact on them. Uh, in terms of creating jobs, in terms of uh, creating uh, the ecosystem to to help them succeed in their own endeavors, so um, so highlighting that aspect as well that uh, that hey the community is is an active community and people help each other and uh, uh, who succeeded can lift uh, the rest of the community. So what have the two of them learned from all of these stories? For Anwar and Malik, who are both immigrants from Damascus, Syria, they found themes reminiscent of their own American stories, even within the narrative of others. There's always the urge to kind of like celebrate all those who like immigrate and go to the US and go to Europe and do great things. But you can also be a normal person. You know, in, in my opinion, you know, happiness is success. Finding your happiness and finding your community and finding a place that you can call home is a success. You know, not everybody has to be top of their school or top of their job and be the CEO of their company 
to fit the model of, of you know immigrant success in my opinion you know immigrant success is as an immigrant being able to find a new home where it feels like home where you're happy where you have a community and unfortunately a lot of people come here and you hear stories of people that have been living here for 20 and 30 and 40 years and they still don't feel like they're home it's like you wasted your entire life not living at home so and in, in my perspective that's that's huge success finding your home success Since talking with the team at Community in Arabic, they've actually kicked off their second season. So be sure to grab a cup of tea and check out their podcast. And what a concept, truly, of sharing tea or breaking bread together over stories. What better way to get connected with one another, right? Especially breaking bread. I am a believer. Once we get out of this COVID, ooh, I'm a believer in coming together uh, and eating together is an amazing connector. That's award-winning journalist and co-host of The Stoop podcast, Hana Baba. Uh, I live in San Francisco, California, and I am Sudanese-American. So my family came from Sudan in East Africa, just in case folks didn't know what Sudan was. In addition to working on her podcast, she works in the public radio space, sharing news and highlighting the stories from her community of African immigrants. I sat down with Hannah to talk a little bit more about her podcast, her identities, and why representation matters in our community. So The Stoop um, came out of the kitchen of KELW, our, our station that we worked in, me and Leela Day. She's my friend who co-hosts. She's African-American. And so we always used to have these conversations while we were, you know, making coffee, warming up our food in the microwave, whatever. We would we would have read something on what wherever on Twitter or an article. And we would always have these conversations. You know, did you read that? Did you read that? Well, what do you think? And what do you think? These very black um, topics. And and we knew we wanted to make something. Um, and the conversations that we wanted to have were not did not fit in the in the news show that we were working on um and we listened you know to other podcasts podcasting wasn't huge at at that time this was 2016 um and so there were not a lot of black podcasts period but definitely not a lot of podcasts um that were kind of talking about blackness from multiple black perspectives. So we wanted to bring African-American perspective, African immigrants, Caribbean, you know, all kinds of black and come at issues from a global black perspective. Um, and nobody was doing that. So we took it upon ourselves. We said, hey, we, we've got to do this then, right? Um, called it the stoop so it could be like just like the conversations the casual conversations that you have on your front stoop with family and friends and so we wanted to that we wanted to have that kind of a vibe because we worked in news which is very you know very newsy in journalism and I think we missed that kind of just casual vibe just people chopping it up and having a conversation and laughing and um, and so purposefully, that's 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 the kind of podcast we have today. And we knew we wanted to talk about difficult issues. We knew we would talk about me getting called African booty scratcher or Leela being told she sounds white and why she sounds white 
or why we don't say I love you as much in our communities or um, when African-Americans wear African-inspired clothing and head wraps and things, how do Africans feel about that? So those are the, the like the weedy, <laughs> difficult things that we know folks talk about in their homes, around their kitchen tables. Like we know these conversations happen and we were just bringing them out into the open. Um, and so those are the kind of things, if it's, if it's, if we're living it, if it's interesting, if it's something people don't talk about enough, then it's going to be on the stoop. The stoop, the stoop, the stoop, the stoop. The stories we tell, but maybe not in the open. Y'all are black, but y'all aren't real black. Shh, girl, we can't talk about that. Mm. The stoop. I'm Hannah Baba. And I'm Leela Day. We want to like take you somewhere that's a little bit of a sound journey. But storytelling. Definitely storytelling. And journalism. Season one is coming up. And you know how to find us, the usual places. It's not hard for us to imagine why the work Henna does is so important. Just by listening to her talk, we can tell. But from her independent podcasting work to her work at KLW, I wanted to know, what does it mean for her to be a storyteller? She told me that what it actually comes down to is a combination of things, including uplifting other people into the media industry to ensure that our stories get the reach and the screen time and encompass the diversity that they should. I mean, I grew up not seeing myself in any kind of media. And so for me, it is so important to to help others also see themselves as well. Um, and for me, representation is very, very important. So I try to do stories about Africa and Sudan and, you know, wh- whenever I can. Um, and I've, I have done many stories about the Sudanese community and, and different things about Sudan for, for even our news show um, and for um, shows that have, you know, national programs and such, because there, it's there's a void there, right? And I feel like if if not me, who? And there's not enough of us in media. There's not enough of people of color, period, in media, in any medium right now. It's still the, the diversity conversation that we've been having for decades. We've moved forward, but not a whole lot. And so that means that certain people are telling all of our stories. Um, and I'm a believer that we need, I always, wherever I go, I'm trying to recruit people to become journalists and to, you know, just enter media fields. And in a lot of our immigrant communities, that's a struggle because, you know, a lot of these immigrants come with the idea that their children, you know, they want their best for their children. And for them, that's doctor, that's engineer, maybe lawyer, not so much. I think more recently that like these parents are agreeing to lawyer, but for them, it's like doctor, engineer, engineer, doctor, doctor, engineer. And it's like media, like journalism, what filmmaking, you know, it just doesn't click with them. And that's understandable. That's where they come from. Um, Where they come from, these are the jobs that are prestigious, and these are the jobs that provide financial stability. So, you know, in that way, I get it. But at the same time, when I'm talking to parents, 
about letting their kids, because this has happened where teenagers have come to me, come to me and, you know, just like, can you talk to mama? Can you talk to Baba? You know, and I would have these conversations and they would, you know, they would be like, look, you know, all due respect to you and your work. <laughs> but, you know, we did not come here all the way, you know, part, leave our country, leave our families, leave whoever to come and for them to like be on the radio or for them to, you know, and they're very honest about it. Right. And so this idea of, well, well, okay, well, maybe it can be a hobby, get, you know, get your engineering degree and do the podcast on the side, whatever it is. So we, I, I get into these negotiations, but then bottom line is I tell them, I ask them this question, how do you think our countries and our people are portrayed in media? And the answer is always horrible, right? So how do you think we can change that if we are not in media, in newsrooms, at the table to go in and try to change these narratives? And nobody can tell your story better than you. And, and that's what gets them. If there's one thing I've resonated with while talking to Henna, it's been the importance of storytelling as a medium. Whether it's film, podcasting, TV, etc., stories are what move us. They're what put us in the shoes of others to build empathy. And most of all, they're what allow us to take our public image and media into our own hands. I really think a lot of our issues in our communities can be solved. Yes, with breaking bread and becoming together and all of that, but also... Um, by being at the table, and the, by the table I mean the media table, I really think a lot of the problems and misconceptions and uh, issues that have happened between our communities and among us come from um, media stereotypes, wrong portrayals, um, and they're damaging, and they've done a lot of damage. And I think the only way to change that is through us being there creating media, um, creating all kinds of projects that can, that, that can tell the true stories and to really own our own narratives. So, storytelling and story sharing are clearly a huge part of understanding one another. But what about the other half of history? The seemingly dry, calculative world of numbers and statistics. Recently, Pew Research Center published updated stats and figures, including tons of numbers on the Asian and Asian American communities. And according to those figures, the nation's Asian population rose to 11.9 million by the year 2000 and then nearly doubled to 23.2 million by 2019. That's a 95% increase within the last two decades. While sometimes we have the platform and the ability to tell our unique stories, other times we get reduced to statistic. And for the vast and quickly growing Asian American communities, often data on race and ethnicity are the only way in which we get incorporated into conversations about race and ethnicity, which in turn fuels stereotypes like our infamous model minority myth. 
but recently, I had the chance to be in conversation with somebody who's working really hard to compile data and statistics that actually humanize our communities, and even work to overturn the model minority myth itself. Basically, I'm asking Asian American college students um, you know, what their experiences are like in terms of their racial and ethnic identity, um, how they define, how they perceive themselves to be, or um, kind of criticize the model minority myth, and then how they perceive uh, or don't experience or do experience activism. That's Jackie Yi. You might remember her from a previous episode. She's actually a researcher studying Asian American identity and actually quantifying and compiling data on Asian communities, our perceptions of ourselves and others, and how we engage in activism ourselves. Jackie's research at the University of Illinois is not only cool to hear about, but also a very crucial aspect to better understanding Asian identity, where Asians fit in with other minorities, and documenting our history. She talked to me a little bit more about how she's been documenting our stories through these studies, and also what she's learned in the process of doing it. There's a measure that was published in 2010 called the Internalized Model Minority Myth Measure. Um, it essentially has this stem that says, like, in comparison, to other racial minority groups, such as Black Americans, Latinx Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans are dot, dot, dot. And it gives um, a list of about, like I think 15 or so items that talk about how Asian Americans have stronger work ethics. Asian Americans are more academically successful. Asian Americans are good at science and math as well as Asian Americans don't experience racism. Asian Americans are less likely to face barriers um, in the corporate ladder, climbing up the corporate ladder. Um, Asian Americans are seen as more favorable um, than other racial minority groups. So it has a bunch of these items. So it's been used in research pretty, um, pretty recently, um, looking at how people Asian Americans who endorse these items, who endorse the model minority myth, might predict things like worse mental health, for example. I was really curious in how people who are Asian American and, and endorse the model minority myth, how that might predict anti-black attitudes. So anti-blackness is a huge issue in the Asian American community. Um, and I thought that the model minority myth would and people's attitudes towards it would potentially predict greater anti-black attitudes. Um, so, you know, the model minority myth has been talked about as this racial wedge um, and that it pits minorities against each other. So I was really curious in, in, in kind of that quantitative link between, you know, does greater beliefs in the model minority myth predict greater um, anti-black attitudes? So that's, that's one research question in that study. And I'm also looking at how that's related to support for affirmative action. So also with this narrative of meritocracy, um, I think Asian Americans um, play a very critical role in these affirmative action debates. So I was really curious, when Asian Americans really believe in the model minority myth, does that relate more to um, them also not supporting affirmative action? Because a lot of times, you know, um, in my own like anecdotal experience, I've, I've talked to Asian Americans who are against affirmative action, and a lot of it has to do with this narrative of meritocracy. You know, 
we think Asians work hard, so why do um, we are deserving of these spots and um, other mo minorities are not deserving of these spots. So um, I, I do have the results which show that greater internalized model minority myth among Asian American college students is um, related to greater anti-black attitudes. Um, I did not find a direct relationship between greater internalized model minority myth beliefs and non-support for affirmative action. So that link wasn't um, strong in my data. Um, but I did find that it might be mediated, which means basically explained by other variables. Um, so I'm looking at kind of ways to really disentangle that relationship between um, beliefs in the model minority myth and non-support for affirmative action. So I'm still looking into that. Um, but yeah, I, I did find a strong association to anti-black attitudes in my study. So the final one that would probably, you know, really spark, my, the final research project that, that really sparked my interest, particularly in your talk, for example. Let me jump back in right here. By your talk, Jackie is actually referring to a talk I gave with a friend at the Asian American Cultural Center back at the University of Illinois. It was called Becoming Asian American, and it was a rather jarring presentation for the community as my friend and I delved deep into how we felt as South and Southeast Asian people in East Asian spaces in college, and how I felt that South Asians often fell through the cracks when it came to Asian identity. Funny enough, Jackie happened to be conducting research on that very topic, which she continues to talk about here. Um, so, like I said, I'm interested in, um, in Asian Americans, how they engage in activism. So I had the opportunity to um, access this really large data set um, with over 30,000 college students across the U.S., across like 88 campuses across the U.S. So I had a really sizable Asian American sample. Um, and I, I thought that that would be a great opportunity to look at ethnic group differences. So a lot of times in this research, it's really difficult to get large enough samples, especially if you wanna do ethnic group differences. Um, for example, in the model minority myth study that I did, I only have like 81 South Asian students, you know, and then a lot of them are Chinese American. And so it's really hard to, to get the numbers, frankly. It's a logistic issue. Um, as well as, you know, if I'm on a college campus and doing research on college students, then a lot of Southeast Asian students might not be represented. So there's, there's a lot of issues there. So I had the opportunity to use this really huge data set um, and parse apart ethnic group differences. And I actually chose to look at differences between Southeast and Southeast Asian students on campus and how they engage in activism. Um, so I found using the study, basically I found that South Asian students engaged in significantly more um, social change behaviors or activist type of behaviors um, than East Asian students. And then Southeast Asian students were next and then East Asian students uh, engaged in um, the least amount of, of social change behaviors. So that was one, one finding. The second finding was that um, South Asian students experienced higher, significantly higher um, levels of perception of discrimination on their campus in a hostile campus environment um, compared to East Asian students. So that's the second finding. And um, the third finding was that I found um, basically a moderation of ethnic group on the relationship between perceptions of discrimination on campus and social change behaviors. And what that means is that basically I looked at the association between those two constructs and I found that when students were um, feeling that their campus was really discriminatory, 
they engaged in way less social change behaviors. So it might have been this really inhibiting thing um, for students to experience discrimination on their campus and, and feel that it might not be safe to engage in, in social change behaviors. So that's just a glimpse into the amazing research that Jackie has done so far. Jackie actually wants to become a professor and continue this research from there. And it actually reminds me of Sanjay Mishra. Uh, my name is Sanjay Mishra, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at uh, Drew University in New Jersey. It's in Madison, New Jersey. I am Indian American. I grew up in India, came to the U.S. to do my uh, PhD. So that's who I am. Professor Mishra wrote a fantastic book that a friend actually lent me back in college, titled Desi's Divided. The book flushes out tons of data, statistics, and stories about the South Asian experience, and has taught me so much about South Asian history that I never even knew. Here, I'll let you hear more about the work from Professor Mishra himself. Uh, when I use the term Desi Divided, Part of the attempt was to make it catchy, but part of the attempt was to also make sure that I, I capture the main thrust of my book, which was about how Desi experience is, uh, is multiple. And in many ways, there are uh, divisions within South Asian community that shapes their experiences, their political participation, their social uh, engagement, etc. And so that's one thing. Professor Mishra was kind enough to give us a crash course on three main takeaway points of his book. The first takeaway, as he's going to describe in a second, is that South Asians or Desis are a relatively young population. And that is a very crucial thing. One of the things that I have come to realize more and more is that uh, South Asians as a community is uh, is a very, very uh, young community and what do I mean by that in the American context what I mean by that is that uh, South Asians are overwhelmingly a foreign-born community right so a large segment of the community approximately I would say 65% and above is foreign-born meaning people who were born in India grew up in India came to the U.S., right? And so it is heavily first-generation community, right? Only 29, 30 or 32% of the community is second-generation, right? And so that shapes the way in which uh, our community is defined, our community politics is defined, right? In his book, aptly named Desi's Divided, Professor Mishra also challenges the idea that people are unified in society and activism by what he calls ethno-racial identity. Ethno-racial meaning, for example, Indian American identity, or even more broadly, South Asian identity. Instead, he explains how there are more cleavages in our racial and ethnic groups than meet the eye, and without acknowledging those differences between us, we can't truly effectively unite? Uh, there are very important religious distinctions within our community like uh, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Sikhs. Those shape our political, social, cultural mobilization. But his final takeaway for us was something that we're all pretty 
familiar with that model minority uniquely American. It was a call for solidarity with other people around the world, or in his words, transnational solidarity. It's very important for us to, as an immigrant community, it's important to think of uh, our political mobilization in transnational terms, right? That our our political mobilization cannot be cannot be only understood through engaging with American politics, right? Because as I said, our community is uh, largely foreign-born, first-generation driven. Uh, and what happens in the home country, what's hap- what happens in India, what happens in Pakistan, what happens in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, is shaping the ways in which our community is mobilizing ourselves. Our community is, is thinking about our politics, right? So a significant part of my book is to, is to engage with this idea of uh, thinking about uh, what are the ways in which uh, desis are transnational. Professor Mishra documented all that he's talked about on here and way, way more in his book, Desis Divided. You can probably pick up a copy at your local library or via quick Google search, and I highly, highly recommend reading it. He uses a lot of hard stats and data to back up how and why he thinks the South Asian community gets divided, and he looks into some ways that we can try and remedy that. He also mentions a number of people and organizations working to do that work already. For example, a nonprofit called South Asian Americans Leading Together, also known as SALT. I do think, unfortunately, there are a number of things that do divide the South Asian American community. I think, um, you know, like there are some shared experiences, I think, across South Asian communities. But, um, you know, we do have very divided experiences, too. That's actually Lakshmi Sridharan. She's the executive director of SALT in D.C. In terms of the countries and communities, um, we as a pan-South Asian organization, um, you know, we do our best to represent people who are from or have ancestry from India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, um, the, you know, the Indo-Caribbean diaspora, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple of countries, Bhutan and others. Um, and, you know, we do our best to, um, I think, make sure that we are prioritizing um, the populations from these different countries of origin who are the most vulnerable to um, inequity here in the U.S. um, based on, you know, the policy priorities that we have. Um, And so I would say that's kind of um, that's that's kind of the population. And in terms of the priority issue areas, they are around um, immigrant justice, both for legal and authorized immigrants, but with a a heavier focus on the undocumented population um, because we've had, you know, a huge spike in the number of people who um, not just, you know, overstay their visas and become undocumented in the U.S., but also um, migrants who are seeking asylum increasingly, um, especially from India, where, you know, um, there are eroding rights for religious minority populations um, and a lot of violence that they're facing. And so uh, we've seen a spike in asylum here. Um, So those populations and those issues advocating for permanent solutions for those communities is a big part of our work. Um, I think continuing to address hate violence um, and really connect it um, to, to state policies of discrimination. So not just seeing 
individual acts of violence, although that's the data that we're collecting on a regular basis, but always connecting it back to, you know, what kind of discriminatory state policy from our government is resulting in these increases in violence. Um, So kind of keeping that lens um, at all times and advocating for policies that get to the root causes of violence. And then lastly, like, you know, monitoring issues of enforcement and surveillance and, um, and how the federal government kind of infringes on our civil rights and civil liberties um, pretty regularly. And um, yeah, so those are kind of the, the issues that we work on and the populations that we serve and prioritize. The nonprofit has been documenting all kinds of research and policies on South Asian American stories and issues. They've released a great study we looked at in Episode 7 discussing how the pandemic has impacted South Asian Americans. One way that Lakshmi and her team at SALT have been documenting our histories is by shining a brighter light on stories of the undocumented South Asian American community. Um, It still is a smaller percentage um, of people who are, um, you know, being forced to actually cross the U.S.-Mexico border in order to enter. And the vast majority in the South Asian community and in particular the Indian American community are visa overstays. you know, which result in them becoming undocumented. But in terms of the population that is, um, you know, who are migrants who are being forced to cross the U.S.-Mexico border because they're seeking asylum, that that particular population is, is growing, um, you know, very rapidly and has in the last five years. And we do consider that a significant um, part of our population and, um, and specifically, you know, the conditions that they face um, when they're in detention, which is what we're primarily focused on as a domestic facing um, national organization is to uplift um, and, you know, do our best to address and, and challenge um, the kind of abuse that people are facing in detention. And um, in particular, that includes, you know, being denied language access, um, medical neglect in a lot of cases, um, whether people are coming in with injuries or or being injured because they're being assaulted by the staff of the detention facilities, um, you know, not being given proper religious accommodations. Um, and then, you know, as far as, um, as extreme as, Uh, being thrown into solitary confinement um, for any sort of, you know, action or challenge to the guards. Um, uh, You know, these are all things that we're seeing. And many of these um, South Asian men in particular who are are coming as asylum seekers um, are often being forced to go on prolonged hunger strikes to bring attention to their cases because um, they, you know, they'll be languishing in a detention facility for over a year with with their case still not being heard. Um, and then I think in the fewest cases where the case is actually heard or there's some movement on the asylum case, um, many of these people are not are being given um, bond um, to be released from detention at extraordinarily high rates, um, upwards of $30,000. Um, so then, you know, again, there's another challenge there with how are people supposed to afford um, to pay that kind of money just to be able to wait their for their turn in court um, and wait outside of detention, which is actually how asylum policy is supposed to work. Um, so I think, you know, those are all a lot of the, of the challenges that we work with many of our immigrant justice partners who are in um, El Paso in particular in Texas and some in Louisiana and even New Mexico, because um, that's kind of disproportionately, I think, where many migrants are detained um, before they're transferred and deported. So. 
Um, yeah, this has become a, a big focus of our immigrant justice work at SALT in the last two years, um, and we're continuing to see a rise. And I think the impact of COVID in particular, where um, there, I think there's a lot of statistics coming out every day that, you know, there's so many cases um, in these facilities and they're spreading fast and um, ICE and others have not done anything to, um, to protect folks. So, According to SALT's website, Immigration issues affect a large number of South Asians, which makes sense considering what Professor Mishra mentioned about how young immigrants make up the largest portion of South Asian American populations. So, according to SALT's website, numerous members of the South Asian community have faced obstacles in attaining permanent legal status and citizenship in the U.S., and they've also suffered the harsh impact of enforcement initiatives, such as the National Security Entry-Exit Registration System. Now, on top of that, South Asians have been subjected to discriminatory profiling through immigration policies that sometimes end up resulting in their deportation for low-level offenses. And this report was from a while back, but even today, we're seeing these same groups of immigrants in rough positions as the COVID-19 pandemic takes a hold in India and borders shut around the world, leaving young immigrants far away from their families who may be sick or even dying. India has over 25 million estimated COVID cases and 270,000 deaths and counting with Western countries, including the United States, refusing to send significant amounts of financial aid and vaccine materials to India, something that's also known as vaccine apartheid, India is seeing a huge humanitarian disaster sweeping the country. In moments like these, we're lucky to have organizations like SALT, who are advocating for the West to do more to help in the crisis. But it goes to show you that documenting our histories isn't always pretty. In fact, more often than not, it's difficult, complex, and even a bit traumatic. But dealing with trauma and facing deportations isn't only an issue for the South Asian American community. You know, the deportations have been escalating in our communities. And um, the Southeast Asian communities um, who are getting deported are not undocumented. They, you know, had green cards or visas for a number of years. And some of these members who are getting deported were people who, you know, got into crime early on and they paid their dues, got jobs, have families, went to school, even graduated, and yet they were still getting deported. And it would accelerate under the Trump administration. And I had talked to a number of Cambodian American leaders on my podcast, um, to talk about their work in ending deportation. That's a friend of mine, Randy Kim. He's been sharing stories on his podcast in the Chicago community for about two years now, and I had the chance to sit down with him in conversation about his work. Randy has put a ton of influential stories out in the past two years. I spoke with him about how he started his podcast, and it began with his passion in journalism, but then it actually came back full circle to a concept that Hanna and I talked about earlier as well, the art and process of breaking bread in order to build community. You know, growing up, I actually wanted to become a journalist uh, back then, but, you know, for many reasons with the economic recession and, you know, the struggles of, you know, trying to connect with anyone in that industry, um, I wanted to kind of like at least rekindle that part that was missing and also the fact that I really do believe in civic engagement work I I do believe 
in Asian American advocacy and talking about her history. And I'm like, well, how can we, how can I channel that energy to create something that uh, would be meaningful? So I created the Bummy Chronicles podcast uh, back in fall 2019. And uh, what the Bonnaby Chronicle podcast does is it talks about the Asian American experiences of assimilation, intergenerational trauma, uh, community empowerment uh, related work. And I would interview uh, a number of Asian American uh, guests, uh, both locally in Chicago and also across the U.S. The the Bunby Chronicles, why is it named that way? Um, well, Bunby means bread in Vietnamese. And the concept is to break Bunby or breaking bread uh, with other folks. The second part of the explanation is that the Bunby sandwiches was the first food that I felt I could accept uh, because the Bunby sandwiches uses the French bread and um, and uses the Vietnamese ingredients. In, in fact, it's kind of like a fusion between the French and the Vietnamese culture and, you know, France colonized Vietnam for uh, generations. So in a way it was kind of like the mix between Western and the Vietnamese culture. And for me, it kind of paralleled my own identities and that struggle of dealing with assimilation. So I kind of saw the Bummy Chronicles as a way to talk about the Asian American experiences, the Asian diaspora in of itself. So Randy and I got to talk about storytelling, and I asked him why it matters so much to him to tell these stories. His answer was reminiscent of my own sentiments regarding Asian American storytelling. He explained how stories, not merely the ones of success or wealth or higher education in our communities, but stories of struggle, stories of trauma, stories of immigration, are possibly the most important way for us to actually see ourselves reflected in our history documentation of the Asian American history is so, so critical to seeing mirrors of ourselves. Uh, it's an opportunity to start telling our stories our way, you know, without having to have a white historian tell our stories, without having someone trying to appropriate our culture. I mean, these are really important because we're telling a history of our community that we haven't learned. We're, we're just starting to uncover People like Grace Lee Boggs, you know, I wasn't taught who she was until I was almost 30 years old. And I'm 30, going to be 38 this year. I only knew about her work eight years ago. I only knew about Kochiyama around that same time. Why didn't I learn that in college? Why didn't I learn that in high school? Uh, why didn't I learn about who Fred Korematsu is? Why didn't I learn these important historical figures who were doing this important work? Why didn't we learn who Vincent Chin was when he got, uh, and how he got murdered? So... There is, there is a danger when people who do not have the experience are telling these stories, and it is very problematic. And so, you know, I'm not looking for success stories. I'm not looking for Asian entrepreneurs. That's not my interest. My interest is talking to Asian American people who are advancing the conversations and doing the hard work uh, to have these uh, discussions with their own family to. Uh, to navigate their traumas, uh, to talk about or breaking the monolith of Asian American stories that not everyone is a successor. There's so many different paths to how we survive. That's right. Because contrary to what we hear in mainstream media, being Asian is more than just trying to find perfection or success. It's a process of learning about ourselves and our histories and working to survive. This narrative of perfection just 
isn't true for us. And we see that more and more every day as our community grows and expands. Who is really perfectly Cambodian? Who is perfectly Vietnamese? Who is perfectly Asian? None of that exists. It's all an illusion. The things that we fight to achieve this model minority, this perfect Asian, to get this A pluses, it's bullshit. <laughs> Sorry for my language, but it's absolute bullshit. There's nothing wrong with being our B pluses, even our C pluses. Yeah, that we're okay like when we're not at our best. But as long as that we are surviving and then we're just taking time to give ourselves the opportunity to seek opportunities that uh, help us, that, uh, that uh, help discover who we are, who we want to become. Who we want to become. You know, I've always thought about history and even those who document our stories as in the past tense. Even now, history feels like something we grasp onto during periods of political and social upheaval. But this idea of using history and storytelling to decide who we get to become, that's inspiring to me. That's comforting and human. And at risk of sounding overly optimistic, I do believe that it's the storytellers in our society who end up changing the world. The Malik and Anwars who choose to sip tea over stories. The people like Henna and Randy who cherish sitting with friends and breaking bread from all around the world. And even the scientific people like Jackie Yi, Professor Mishra, and Lakshmi Sridharan who remind us that there are faces and stories behind what can feel like cold numbers and data sets. These are the documenters. The people who work really, really hard every day to put our stories in the world and in history and create an atmosphere that I can only describe as reminiscent of the world that Corky Lee brought to us with his work. So. Here's to the people carving out our existence in media and history, one book, one podcast, and one story at a time. And that's it for this week's episode. I know it's been a while, guys, so shukriya. Seriously, thank you guys for being here and listening. And if you're new here, then hello, welcome to Model Minority Uniquely American, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today, I have just one humble request, and that's if you can share this podcast episode with somebody you know, whether that's through a quick social media post or even by word of mouth. Everybody who listens and shares this podcast really, really counts. So thank you all so much. And be sure to follow Model Minority Uniquely American on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. Model Minority was written, created, and produced by yours truly, Nidhi Shastri. All of our music comes from the CC Creative Commons. If you like what you heard and would like to contribute, you can check out a link to donate on anchor.fm or on Patreon. A huge, huge, huge thank you again to everybody who took the time to come on today and talk about documenting our stories. There are links to all of those people's work in the description box below. And as always, thanks for listening and being here. I'm so glad to have you.